Hi everyone, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. This week it's just me, Andy. It is Sunday night here in, in Philadelphia, the 14th. You might be listening to this episode on the 16th. Uh, but it is Monday morning for my two guests that I'm talking to today. They're both located in Taiwan. Um, they are writers with the online magazine known as New Bloom, uh, which, quote, offers radical perspectives on Taiwan and the Asia-Pacific. Uh, so first we have Brian Hugh. You know, he's been on the show before. He's the founder of New Bloom. Brian, how are you doing? Good, good. A little bit tired this morning, but doing all right. And then uh, second we have uh, a writer, another writer with New Bloom, uh, Wen, Wen Liu. Wen Liu. How are you doing, Wen? Good, yeah. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Yeah, she's technically right now. She is an assistant research fellow at the Institute of Ethnology, Academia Sinica, which is in Taiwan. Um, and she did her PhD from uh, with in critical social psychology at the Graduate Center at CUNY. Um, so today, I think you know, I asked um, Brian and Wen to come on because I think I don't know. I just feel like at least in the United States, this question of Taiwan and all these headlines about Taiwan and China keep coming up, and uh, you know, like I think listeners know, I am. My family is Taiwanese, and I think a lot of listeners are Taiwanese. But just in general, even if you're not Taiwanese, um, you might just be curious, like, what is going on in this part of the world? How should I understand it? Um, I think for a good reason, everyone is always very suspicious when you have security uh, analysts and government officials talk about other countries and and get their quotes published in the Washington Post and so on, right? So I thought it would be good to talk to Brian and Wen, who are actually in Taiwan and have you know um, a good internationalist perspective also, um, having been in, in and out of Taiwan uh, to kind of um, you know help guide us and think in terms of thinking about this. Um, could you both kind of uh, and Wen will ask you first, like perhaps give a big brief background, like you know where are you fr- where are you from, where do you grow up? And um, how did you get kind of involved in these issues about um, you know radical politics in Taiwan? Yeah, um, so I actually immigrated to the U.S. when I was sixteen, uh, and um, just started studying, and then did my PhD, and, and actually worked at SUNY Albany for three years as assistant professor. Um, and I think how I got into radical politics, it was really um, coming from the perspective of uh, queer movements. Um, so while during college, and we were doing a lot of the POC organizing and also QPAC organizing. Um, but when I moved to New York from Seattle um, around um, early um, 2010s, um, there was this movement of um, the Sunflower Movement right in um, 2014. Um, also, that's the that's time when I met Brian. Um, and we started organizing around... Um, creating more radical spaces within the Taiwanese diaspora. Um, And also it was the time when I um, know there was actually pretty long history of Taiwanese American activism in the States. Um, And we'll talk about that later. Um, Obviously, um, maybe it went more conservative during the years, but um, I think New Bloom think it it was a good chance in 2014 to sort of create a more left wing of the politics and more sort of younger people involved during, um, yeah, in the past 10 years or so. So did you you grow up in Taipei or outside Taipei or in Taiwan? Yeah, I grew up in Taichung, which is the okay. people don't know. Yeah, it's like the third largest cities in the central. Yeah, place. and I just found out they have a subway now, don't they? Yeah, <laughs> they, they which I, I haven't actually <laughs> used at all. <laughs> and then you you lived in Seattle for a bit, and then you moved to New York, right? Yeah, I was in Seattle for ten years, and then New wow. York for ten years. Yeah, and yeah. I just recently moved back to Taipei last year. Okay, 
yeah, for whatever reason, we keep getting um, guests from Seattle on this show. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so between Taipei, Seattle, and New York, that's like the three cities I like the most too. Brian. Uh, yeah, and Brian, you know, just, I don't know if we talked about this last time, but just to kind of refresh everyone, like what was your what was your trajectory? Yeah, yeah. So I grew up in the U.S. I spent around like uh, 20 years in New York. Uh, I went to college in New York City, etc. Um, initially, I just became politicized, and I don't really know how. Just kind of around me, I think the environment there was a lot of radicalism. Uh, for example, I think a formative moment for me was Occupy Wall Street and being involved in that. And so in 2014, I was in Taiwan, and and I'd gone to know activists uh, after college. I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. So I was like, well, I'll just go back to Taiwan and see what happened from there, and. The acts I got to know later ended up being participants in the Sunfire movement. Uh, I initially was not someone who had participated in Taiwanese social movements uh, before that, but I was always just kind of trying to become involved in what was around me. Uh, I'd studied abroad in Japan, for example, and become involved in some of the anti-nuclear activism after Fukushima in, in 2012. Um, which was then one of the largest social movements since the uh, 1960s. And so uh, this was, I think, a moment in which there was a lot of memory of these occupation-style movements that were uh, kind of highlighting these issues of global socioeconomic inequality. And so I think with friends talking about how to let the world know what happened with the Sunfire movement and uh, how to push the movement more to the left, that kind of became what New Bloom was later formed. And so, for example, when I met around then, uh, we had a mutual friend from Japan, actually, who kind of put us in touch. Um, Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Uh, how is how are things in Taiwan? Like, is it mostly normal? You can um, do, do. Are people wearing masks everywhere, and are they still afraid of COVID, or is it mostly been we got this under control? Because the outside perception is like Taiwan is this COVID utopia. They, they got under control from day one, and so on. How is it like today? Yeah, I think um, so. Are, are back to normal? I think more or less. Um, people are still wearing masks everywhere. Uh, there's still delays uh, in terms of uh, some vaccines, for example. Uh, there are shortages in the beginning, and, and that led to slow pace. There's about a six months of outbreak, but now it's back down to like zero cases per day. Um, but then, then there was like one year entirely in which Taiwan was COVID free, and then there was a six month outbreak, right. and now it's under control. So it's back to yeah. COVID zero, I guess. Yeah. I just want to add because uh, recently the uh, karaoke restriction has been lifted. Uh, people can sing without mask now. It's so a very that's infectious a activity. That. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, um, so I want to eventually get to these bigger meta issues, but I feel like listeners um, will want to at least talk about like the the random or not random, but just sort of like the the confusing headlines. Let's say of the last month. So I'm, it'll be my job to kind of quickly give a few dates and summaries what's been going on, and I want to hear from you too, like. Does all this stuff mean anything, or is it, is it just kind of standard bluster, right? So, I mean, we, I think everyone is familiar. Taiwan is sort of this um, chip, right, between the between the U.S. and China ha- has been for a long time. The most um, pressing issue is that I guess tomorrow, so before this episode comes out, uh, the the leader of China, Xi Jinping, is going to I guess do a Zoom call with Biden, and Taiwan will be the focus. And this comes after about a month of buildup kind of between China and Taiwan. Um, So, for instance, this past week, uh, the Secretary of State Blinken from the U.S. affirmed the U.S. commitment to defend Taiwan against China. Australia joined in. So that's kind of the most recent event. Rewind about a month ago, Biden was in this town hall in CNN and someone asked him about defending Taiwan against China. He said, yes, we do have a commitment to do that. This was seemed to be um, a bit more aggressive, quote unquote, than the status quo policy of virtual neutrality, uh, which was called strategic ambiguity. Um, So the White House kind of had to walk it back. Um, um, And then rewind to October 4th, at the beginning of October, when there's all these national holidays in China, um, China, the Chinese military sent in, quote, a record number of planes, about 150 airplanes, 
flying in Taiwan's air defense zone. And that was kind of triggered a lot of alarm. And so from the Chinese side, you know, they, they, the Chinese officials always say, you know, Taiwan is part of China. Any talk about independence is an act of aggression by Taiwan, by the United States. Uh, the president of Ta- Taiwan, Tsai Ing-wen, has kind of said a few times, we don't need to declare we're independent. We already are independent. Um, uh, you know, and as for, you know, in case people don't know, Taiwan basically has a government that does all the functions of a government. Like it, it, it's democratically elected, it has its own currency, tax system, postal service, military, et cetera. So I think there's a very good case that it is effectively an independent country. But obviously it's not internationally recognized as such. Okay, for those, for you two living in Taiwan, um, and when I'll ask you first, what has it been like, I guess this last year, the last few years, um, when a lot of this stuff has kind of escalated? Has you Have you actually... Have you, your friends, your family, right? Have you all fa- actually felt like Chinese invasion is more likely than it was before? Or do you feel like this is just a lot of bluster? Um, I do feel like at a political level, it's a lot of blusters. Um, but if you talk to common folks, um, this is not something new, right? Like um, for people in my generation, we have been through the 1996, the cross Strait. um uh, relation when it it was really intensified when we held our first sort of democratic election. So I think that is really deep in Taiwanese people's memories that, you know, China always, you know, just, you know, uh, um, make out threats, but it never really carry through. And a lot of time, like China's threats is m- more about how it wants to control its internal discourse, right, national discourse, than about Taiwan itself. So I think um, if we do a more rational analysis, that is what is happening. And also, I'm really interested now because that's also my research. Um, if you look at the investment activity, um, because of COVID, um, you know, after 2018, 2019, there was actually more money pouring back to Taiwan. Like rich people are uh, investing in a real estate, right? They're like Taiwanese um, rich people. Yeah, Taiwanese rich yeah. people, um, they're bringing their capital back from China, from overseas, and to investing their real estate uh, development in Taiwan. So that shows, right, uh, for a lot of these folks with um, mobility, like cross-national mobility, they think Taiwan is actually a safer place. So um, if you look at that, I do think um, we shouldn't think about the threats sort of um, out of control. And we have to think about that is the way in which China wants to assert itself um, domestically and also maybe wants some deals um, internationally, but it's not necessarily that much about Taiwan. Yeah. So do you, I mean, do you know people in Taiwan who take this stuff very seriously? Like, oh my God, did you see what happened? Or do most people kind of deep down know, like, this doesn't, this is nothing new or like, we'll believe it when we see it. Yeah, this is hard. I mean, this is kind of the ambiguous subjectivity that a lot of Taiwanese people have. Like uh-huh. from my generation, I mean, from my uh, own family, right? Like the reason why I even immigrated when I was 15 and my parents did not, because there was this idea that one day Taiwan will be taken over by China. So it's oh. best that if we have some kind of international experiences or green cards or even U.S. citizenship. So mm. I think that idea is still very much... Um, like I would say the elite Taiwanese people think about future, that they want security abroad. Um, but I feel like, you know, um, coming from the 90s and Taiwan as a country now is more and more recognized in some way by um, the international community. Um, it has its own identity, you know, more clearly. It, I feel like that's not how younger people feel today. 
very different from maybe my generation or my parents' generation. They think about Taiwan as their home and sort of home that, you know, they would defend uh, whatever happens. And we do hear yeah. that uh, politicians do sort of stress on Taiwan's need to create or strengthen its defense system. I think that is definitely in the domestic news that, yeah. you know, there's a lot about, yeah. Uh, yeah, like how how can we reform our military system, things like that. That's been uh, on the news cycle for sure, but it's not n- anything like in the emergency state, I think. Yeah, yeah. Right. Oh, it's interesting. So you think, I don't know, how old are we? Are we? Millennials and younger are, are more or less like, eh, you know, like, we don't want to leave. This is our place. So like, what's, is it almost sort of like a, like, it's not that they don't even know how dangerous it is. They just like, don't care because they're not going to leave no matter what. Yeah. And I do think like, you know, climate change, all these things, earthquakes, that that is also a looming concern, right? So China's threat, it's kind of just being normalized in some way it's always yeah. there but it's never really happened right 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 okay yeah brian what, what i know you've been you've written actually you've actually written a lot about this you wrote a piece for the yeah. specter recently <laughs> that is uh borrowing from a piece you actually wrote for new bloom a few months ago um mm. so you broke this down rationally so i guess i guess i want to ask you both rationally but also i guess irrationally personally like do you feel mm-hmm. uh, how do you feel about this like is this bluster or is this has anything substantive substantively changed yeah, I mean, it definitely is an increase in the uh, military threats. I mean, China did not usually do this kind of air incursion uh, in the past. Now it's increased to the frequency in, on a daily basis sometimes. And so there's 150 planes between October 1st and October 5th, and there's 680 planes in the past year. And so this was the five days after Chinese National Day, and that's why there's an increase in these threats. Um, but I think then China has, uh, I mean, part of it is, I think just it doesn't really phase Taiwanese people because it's cut off from everyday reality. Uh, it's just a military threat. Uh, from afar, uh, you see it about the news, but then it recedes, and in, in the news, it just becomes you know dominated by entertainment news and gossip and that sort of thing as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think part of it is actually just the news is, is somewhat vapid in the news cycle, but yeah. it's still very removed from the everyday reality of people. I also think China has really uh, been very monotonous with its threats. There's not a sense of progressive escalation intensity. I mean, that's kind of on them in some ways. Yeah. Um, but then in terms of yeah, I guess my own personal experience, and I think for a lot of other people, then. In society, it's people are aware of this. Uh, at the same time, it's not dominating their lives. I mean, I think oftentimes it's funny because I keep getting messages from friends outside, it's like, "Hey, are you alright?" You know, there's all yeah. these military threats, and I see it in the news, and it's like I'm just like, "Well, things are fine here. Everything is normal, and I'm just going about my everyday life." Um, right. and, and so forth. I mean, it is back in the, everyone's heads because I think, again, there have been decades of this, but you know, I don't yeah. think it's really dominating their lives either. The conversations that are being had politically right now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, I can also say anecdotally, I was talking to some scholars this weekend who are from China, and I was, I was asking them what they thought, and they were like, yeah, it's not going to happen. Like, there's no reason. Uh, mm-hmm. Xi Jinping has no reason to do this. There's all these, mm-hmm. irra- it would be irrational to do so for all these reasons, and I think they agree with both of you that if, if to the extent Xi Jinping, like, makes some speech mm-hmm. about unification, it's about, quote-unquote, rallying up his base, you know, even though there's no mm-hmm. elections, but they still he needs some popular support in China to... Uh, you know, become lifelong leader, which is his new goal. Um, mm-hmm. So I also thought it'd be useful to kind of run down Brian's military analysis. I don't know if you like have a second career as a security analyst, but you wrote this <laughs> piece where you you talk about China. Um, the main issue is that also from a military perspective, in the short term, China doesn't have what mm-hmm. you call or what is called. Not I don't think you invented this term. No, lift capacity. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, lift capacity, which is they could not. The Chinese military. Uh, okay, so let me back up. Taiwan has been 
somewhat prepared for something that happened for decades. Uh, famously, the uh, one island in between Taiwan and China called Jinmen Island or Qinmen or Kamui Island is, uh, I think, technically closer to to, to Shaman and Fujian Province in China, mm-hmm. but yeah, technically right. Taiwanese territory. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's that island famously has just been like militarized for years and years and years. I think my dad served on there, and I think actually a lot mm-hmm. of men from my parents' generation served there. Um, mm-hmm. There's man- there's mandatory military service in Taiwan. I guess it used to be two years. Now it's one year, and now it's actually four months or some mm-hmm. some really low number because you know like people don't want to serve in the military. Um, but uh, okay, so Taiwan has not been engaged in battles, but it's been kind of preparing for a while. So Brian, you're, you're saying like, look, even if China mm-hmm. invaded in the short mm-hmm. term, it couldn't overpower what Taiwan has, um, and it would, or if they did overpower them, it would be this like bloody, super mm-hmm. bloody like yeah. D Day kind of event. Um, and then I think the bigger reason for why it's irrational is like, uh, and this gets to this question, and people talk about this all the time with this whole U.S.-China Cold War thing. Mm-hmm. Like, China is not an isolated country, and neither is Taiwan or the U.S. Mm-hmm. economically. Mm-hmm. And so China would basically be destroying the home base for the world's semiconductor chips. I don't know if semiconductors mm-hmm. is like... Yeah, 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 absolutely. It's like, it's, like, yeah. it's like carrying too much weight in these discussions. Like Taiwan makes other things too, but it's, it's, everyone talks about Taiwanese semiconductor as like the big mm-hmm. reason why Taiwan would not be invaded. Uh, yeah, do you want to kind of elaborate sort of like your mm-hmm. totally, totally, your reasoning yeah. so, for why I mean, it's irrational for China? Yeah, yeah. I mean, just there are a lot of reasons, and I think that uh, there's always this narrative. I think that is quite including of just China's big, Taiwan's small, and so there would be no way of fighting off China. Uh, that's true at the end of the day, but that's only true if you're willing to just continually to sacrifice troops in order to overpower Taiwan's defenses. And there are other other mitigating factors as well, such as that uh, China lacks lift, lift capacity. Basically, having enough boats or other means of bringing troops over to Taiwan to carry out a long-term occupation. And just modern military science favors defender, and so you'd be having a beachhead invasion. Uh, you just have people being mowed down, etc. And so losses, uh, estimates of losses are in the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, even. And so this kind of scenario, I mean, if you actually just lose this this amount of young people, I mean, that doesn't work out politically for China's leaders. That leads to a crisis of political legitimacy, particularly when you have not fought a war in forty years. Uh, to that extent, the interlinking of the Taiwanese and the Chinese economy, uh, the Taiwanese economy is large enough that just the Taiwanese economy in crisis would have global ramifications, like the 20th largest economy. Uh, China and Taiwan are deeply interlinked. Uh, China's economy was slowing before COVID-19, and then it's deeply connected at the level of semiconductors and supply chains and so forth. And so this would have catastrophic economic effects. And I don't know if C could really ride the wave of economic crisis that he would provoke in terms of uh, the damage to the economy, but also the loss of life, and then maintain power. It is not rational for him to do so. If you were to do something like this, this would be to manufacture a crisis for a power grab, but it doesn't seem like the most expedient crisis to grab onto at the present. Um, There's even views that, for example, this is why he emphasizes Hong Kong as an issue, that using this as a crisis to justify expanding powers, for example. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, could you... You know, I know when you just mentioned like Taiwanese bourgeoisie reinvesting in Taiwan. Like, are, I don't know if people are fully aware like of how interlinked their economies have been. Like, do, do we? Could you kind of perhaps spell out um, like Taiwanese money is invested in China. China is also invested. Chinese money is invested in Taiwan. Um, like, what are some? What are some like concrete um, like mm. examples of that? Yeah, I think just one number is that like China is our largest uh, export and importing 
trading country. So yeah. I mean, that I think consists of uh, more than ninety percent, right? Is it um, of our export and import? So it's a pretty ninety um, percent. You know, wow. Um, I, I I have to check on the data, but yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's definitely definitely the one of the largest uh, exporting and importing um, countries. So if we lose that, and that means um, a lot of econo- economic activities will um, be you know shut down, you know from both places. And obviously, there's also a huge histories of uh, Taishan, right? Taiwanese um, um, business people, right? Investing in China, opening factories, like you know, like the famous case, like Foxconn. Um, yeah. That there's a lot of um, not just economic activities, but also um, you know, human laborers are um, doing exchanges yeah. for decades. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think. I don't know. I'm not a military expert. I'm not any of that stuff. It does seem plausible to me, though, that this is not going to happen anytime soon, that it would be irrational and that this is largely um, a strategy from Xi Jinping to rile up his support as he declares himself like lifelong leader from now on. Mm-hmm. Um, so the other thing I want to talk about in terms of like stuff you read about Taiwan, especially in, the Eng- in English and in the U.S. or in the rest of the world, is like... It does seem like the left, if the, well, I don't know if I want to say the U.S. left or like the Western left or the non-Asian left, has a hard time deciding what is Taiwan. Um, and in particular, there are examples of, I think, a lot of people who I, I admire and look up to on a lot of questions in terms of U.S. or European stuff, more or less are saying like Taiwan is part of China and um, the Taiwanese people... Um, all this independent stuff is, I don't know, they, either they ignore it or they just like don't acknowledge it or they say maybe it's like bourgeois capitalist politics. I don't know. But um, I don't know. Can I don't know if you all can like talk about like what is your experience kind of coming to understand Taiwan's place for the Western left? Like were you all surprised also when you first saw like leftist commentators say like Taiwan should just be part of China or you know, we shouldn't support Taiwan because it's part of an an American imperialist mission and so on. Yeah, I think for myself, a lot of it really returns to insularity from the Western left. And so they see the shatter of, of Western imperialism everywhere. And this is their main concern is, is opposing Western imperialism. And so conceiving of China as an empire is, is very difficult. And then, you know, they'll just say, well, it's, it's better than us. It's better than the West, better than Western imperialism. So why why not? And I think then you have the attitudes of campism that go way back to the Cold War. Um, and I also think that the Western left's knowledge of Taiwan is stuck in a kind of time warp in which, for example, they do still think of things as though Chiang Kai-shek were still in charge or something like that, as though Taiwan were some kind of right-wing dictatorship backed by uh, by the U.S., I mean, which it was under Chiang and Cheng Cheng Kuo. Um, but then I think also there's the um, real failure to think outside of the KMT's narrative. There's just this accepting of the narrative that Taiwan has always been part of China and that it always will be part of China and that culturally or whatever in terms of the people, that it's all really deeply linked. And so I think the left has actually not really gotten outside of those frameworks as well sometimes. Yeah. What I'm curious, having lived in Taiwan for 15 years and coming to the U.S., what did you do? You have any kind of memories of like the first time you remember? What do people in the U.S. think of Taiwan <laughs> is, and like how it's different than your own self understanding? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think from like my generation, right, millennial, yeah. um, people didn't know about Taiwan at all. So the running joke is that if you say you are from Taiwan, people will say, "Like, are you from Thailand?" Right. Yeah, so yeah. that was the I case. Love Thai food. I was yeah. Saying, 
Yeah, me too. <laughs> but that was 20 years ago. I mean, I feel like things are changing now um, in a good way. But definitely, I think in terms of politics, um, that you always have to defend yourself that you're not Chinese. Um, I mean, that also a part of my radicalization process is that people immediately thought if you speak Chinese, then you're Chinese and didn't understand mm -hmm. that Chineseness is such a ambiguous and sometimes hegemonic category, right? Yeah. That even our government or our education didn't really do, did a good job in sort of problematizing that. So uh, we talk a lot about, um, you know, the process toward desinitization in Taiwan as well, uh, because it is true. I mean, Mandarin as a language was imposed by the KMT to, uh, you know, uh, generations of Chinese people who speak different dialect. And now we thought of it as our national language, um, but it was it, it's not always the case. But there, there was always this idea that because you're Han Chinese, so uh, you're destined to be um, a Chinese person and therefore your motherland is China. <laughs> um, yeah. So that that is, I think, a lot of the common misunderstanding of uh, yeah. Westerners or folks based in the U.S. thought about. Yeah. Yeah, maybe we should do a quick history lesson for people who aren't familiar, but I'm actually just curious to ask you first, um, for when, and then also Brian, like, did you grow up saying you were Chinese, as, like ethnically or as an identity? And did that stop at some point? Or were you always told from your first memories that you were Taiwanese and not Chinese? When was that? What was your experience? I, I never had to thought about that question until I moved to the U.S. And I, I never okay. doubted that I was Taiwanese because um, I think my parents were, you know, they their families have lived in Taiwan for right, 200, right. 300 years. So they were not the group that, you know, migrated right, right, from right. mainland China. That's, so That's my family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's a, I think that's a big change because my parents, they, they spoke Taiwanese dialect at home, okay, um, okay, even yeah. though I'm not fluent. And actually my parents were... <laughs> Uh, my parents' parents, my grandparents, they were, you know, like very Japanese-minded. They spoke mm. Japanese and studied in Tokyo. So we have, our family has that uh, different trajectory. So I never thought about myself as Chinese. But I did when I moved to Seattle. Um, I mean, in my generation, there were not a lot of uh, Chinese from China yet, um, yeah. you know, who immigrated to the U.S. So I always um, had to, because I spoke uh, Chinese, so I, I feel like I had to... Um, do this uh, an analysis in my mind. Like, should I say that I'm Chinese or should I tell yeah. them I'm Taiwanese? But I don't speak Taiwanese, right? right so right. it gets um, pretty convoluted, like what is Chinese-ness mean? So that yeah. becomes one of my really fascinating research questions later. But, um, well, so but there I never, a, never doubted. Mm -hmm. But was there a point in, the 20, in your, like, your 20s when you're like, I'm going to tell people in America that I'm Taiwanese and not Chinese? Right. Yeah, for sure. I think that's um, what I did. And particularly when we were organizing in pan-Asian spaces yeah. and the differences came out, right? Like I met folks from like Chinese folks from Singapore. Uh, yeah. You know, I met folks from Hong Kong. And it's really interesting when we got together. I mean, so we do speak some kind of common language, but our experiences are totally distinct and right. how we viewed about uh, nationalism, how we viewed about identity. Uh, I would say there's some common interest there, but we still grew up very, very differently. So I think that also yeah. politicized me to think about Chinese-ness as not something bound to this idea of mainland China, for sure, right, right, right. from the diaspora. Brian, did you, were you growing up, did you grow up saying you were Chinese or Taiwanese? Probably more Chinese, actually, because uh, my yeah. family is, they're mostly mainlanders. I have one grandparent who isn't actually, but uh, the most, most of my three of my grandparents came over with the KMT to Taiwan. And so yeah. then for them, uh, 
for them, they thought of themselves as Chinese and Taiwanese as Chinese. Uh, and then, for example, for my mother or her generation, uh, saying that I am Taiwanese and I am Chinese is not a contradiction. Uh, but then I think for me, it was oftentimes kind of noticing the sort of gaps or the slippages in their narrative of, of oh, we're all the same, we're all just Chinese. For example, yeah. uh, growing up in the U.S., I noticed that the communities, actually, the uh, the Chinese communities and the Taiwanese communities did not actually really mix together sometimes. And there sometimes be a measure of condescension on both sides, actually. And yeah. so noticing that kind of social dynamic and that interaction, I think, really kind of started to get me to be more skeptical of this kind of just generic claim. And then, uh, you know, looking at my parents' claims of history, uh, being Chiang Kai-shek as this great man of history or whatever. Well, in college, I read his actual book, and I was like, well, these are his political views. <laughs> now I know what this guy thinks. <laughs> you and read so I think eventually, <laughs> Yes, I read his book, China's Destiny. Uh, and so I think um, a lot of it was a process of self-education in that respect. And then yeah. just talking to my cousins, who are you know mostly mainlanders sent, but then identify as Taiwanese, and they fit the stereotypical pattern of this family. That's the first two generations are more KMT, and the third generation is like DPP or something. And so yeah. then I think I was also affected by these identity trends from uh, you know my relatives and so forth. Yeah, I think I never ever considered myself being other than Chinese until my twenties. I think. I mean, this is like reflecting me just being bad at being Asian. Like, I had no idea. I had no interest in any of that stuff. But my parents were definitely like KMT folks who were like, we're Chinese. Um, we happen to come from Taiwan. Um, and then it wasn't until I went to Taiwan in my 20s that I was like, oh, yeah, this is like totally different. This is a totally different thing. And it's a totally different politics involved in, in how you name yourself. Um, so, I, And I think that has my parents have actually moved back to Taiwan. And I think they, they now would say like they're Taiwanese, not Chinese. But it took um. It's interesting. Like I, I think in the seventies, that wasn't a that wasn't said, you know. And then they stayed in the U.S. for twenty, thirty years, and then they came back and like, oh yeah, like we're obviously not China, you know, at this point. Um, <laughs> Can I ask about something it? about Taiwanese Americans? Because I thought, um, yeah. what was what we say was interesting because if you look at the waves of Taiwanese American migration um, in earlier, so like the 50s, 60s, up to the eighties, it was mostly. Yeah. The, uh, um, the Chinese folks who came with the KMT to Taiwan yes. and then moved to the States, right? So, totally. Because it was also, they have a more capital to do so. So in the U.S., we didn't really have that much of a strong Taiwanese-American fraction until, I would say, like, after the 80s, there's, a, you know, larger yeah. waves of Taiwanese-American yeah. immigration, yeah. I'm actually, yeah, I want to like ask you more questions about where you grew up in Seattle. We could talk about that later because I, <laughs> I look back at my time in Seattle being like, I actually didn't know very many Taiwanese people. I, like all my classmates yeah, were Korean, you know? Right. <laughs> um, uh, but, and, 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 well, this is a, I think this is a pretty common pattern talking to Jay and Tammy about this, where a lot of the Koreans who moved were from North Korea and they had no attachment to South Korea. So a lot of the first wave of Taiwanese people were people from mainland who definitely thought they were either going back to China and once they realized they couldn't go back to China, just moved on to the U.S., you know, and they would have less of a commitment to staying in Taiwan because um, they were like, we, we just like, this is just temporary, you know? And um, I don't know, I should, maybe I could plug my like favorite movie all, all time. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, what is it? Edward Yang, Brighter Summer Day, which is all about this generation, right, of, of mainlanders who are just caught in between and they, they, they don't know what's going on and they become very, they act out in a lot of ways. Um, but uh I, yeah, and I think that first generation of Taiwanese Americans, I mean, is it different now? Because my impression was like, well, the first wave gen Taiwanese Americans are like my family, grad students and professionals who want to get the hell out of Taiwan. And they view themselves, view the United States as this like bastion of capitalism and anti-communism, basically. Um, 
are the average, I don't know what the average is, are your friends and your friends like your generation and younger, are they interested in moving to the United States? You know, or has that interest kind of dissipated because they are, you know, I mean, let's just like Taiwan is a lot richer now than it used to be 40, 50 years ago. You could definitely have a nice first class life in Taiwan. I know employment is like not very good and the job prospects are not great, but overall, like living centers are much better than they used to be. Um, yeah, do Taiwanese people still look to go overseas or are a lot, or is that kind of less of a, a dire need these days? Yeah, I'll say from my observation, it um, the you know top ten percent of folks still want to have U.S. passport and U.S. experiences, but because mm-hmm. of the world is just so globalized now, I notice a lot of folks would return to Taiwan after uh, spending a couple of years, like ten to twenty, in the U.S. and brought their even their family, their younger children to Taiwan because it has a much better health insurance and yes, yes. <laughs> you know social security <laughs> system, and it's just a much better place to live if you have money or you have to be uber rich in the right. U.S. to be successful. Um, so for, I think for a lot of the middle class professional, um, they want to spend some time in the States, but they eventually want to move back to Taiwan. And, and, and you know, like because the U.S. now, um, there's a change in narrative about U.S. itself, right? It's not yeah. such a global superpower. There's a lot of uh, issues with racism, right? He has uh, issues with policing and gun violence. I think that's also a lot of these, you know, mi- middle class folks' concern. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Brian, I mean, you're you're the kind of the interesting case of the reverse migration. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like this is actually something that is more uh, attractive to people now, like Taiwan? I mean, not just like people, mm-hmm. not just foreigners, but specifically like Taiwanese diaspora moving back to Taiwan. Yeah, I think uh, it's a complication because I think a lot of, I mean, diaspora that grow up mostly abroad, some just end up coming back to Taiwan for a little bit and they go back. Um, so I think sometimes there's just the kind of home experience. Uh, but I do think that the general historical pattern is that Taiwan is always looking to the outside. And so a lot of young people are finding ways to go outside. And even if they don't plan yeah. to stay permanently outside of Taiwan, they just think it's worth it for the experience for uh, internationalizing themselves and developing their skills. And so I think people that come back to Taiwan are often very highly regarded uh, in society or professionally or, or things like that. Um, and so everyone wants to do grad school in the U.S. or have some experience right. of studying abroad, uh, you know, in the U.S. or Europe or, or elsewhere. Yeah, in Taiwan, I don't know. All the people I know from Taiwan, they're like so into travel. Like they, but like, <laughs> not to China. They go to like Japan and like right. random European countries, you know, because there's like, well, our island is so small, we got to go out. Um, okay, I feel like we lost the thread, but just to go back to this original question of like, what is Taiwan? Uh, I, just to give some concrete examples, and some of these are from your um, article, Brian, but um, David Harvey, I think we kind of, a lot of people who follow this stuff know he's like pro-China suddenly. You mentioned mm-hmm. Naomi Klein. I didn't know she was pro-China these days. Um, um, off Twitter, the last month I've seen Democracy Now!, the host of Democracy Now!, Juan Gonzalez, said, quote, the fact is Taiwan was historically part of China and that the Chinese government has consistently maintained it. There's, there are only 14 countries in the world that currently recognize Taiwan as an independent country. It is an integral part of China, always has been. And that's democracy now, which a lot of people go to you know, for their political guidance in the U.S. Um, that's from the Twitter feed of Jessica Drun. And I just saw this, this weekend, Yanis Varoufakis, who's like the celebrity Marxist economist <laughs> of Greece, you know, I mean, I like him, so I'm not going to hold this against him. But he did tweets recently, uh, you know, Chinese invasion of Taiwan would be bad, but Taiwan is predominantly Chinese, and it should be a matter of as predominantly Chinese people to decide their future, which I don't know what he actually means by that, but I think he's saying, like, well, China's also, like, China's, it's like the homeland, right? It's part of China. So 
That's from um, Zhang Chenchen's Twitter feed. But so I think, okay, there's a lot of reasons, I think, why the Western left sides with China against Taiwan. The first is, in the short term, there's a sense of sticking it to the right, meaning the most recent version of the right, Trump, Rubio, Cruz, are the most vocal support of Taiwan. So if they're bad and they like Taiwan, Taiwan must also be bad. Then there's a long-term one that both of you talked about. It's not just the last uh, five years, but the last 70 years. If they know anything about Taiwanese history, it is that Chiang Kai-shek was the U.S. and U.S. ally in China. They were an anti-communist, you know, pro-capitalist, fascist government. Or pushed to Taiwan after the Chinese Civil War in '49, and for 30, 40 years, it is the part of you know, the United States containment policy of China. And so Chiang Kai-shek was a bad guy, and Taiwan as a project is um, whatever a pawn extension of the U.S. empire. Um, and then I think the the other one is this kind of weird, not necessarily left, not necessarily right, but sort of like anti-war people. So like Quincy Institute, I think The Intercept kind of falls into this weird category mm-hmm. where you can have like a leftist critique of the military, but there's also this kind of like Edmund Burkean critique of, like conservative critique of the government, which is to say we shouldn't fight wars. The Koch brothers, you know, are, are, are in this position also. And they're going to, they, and they say, China and the United States should not go to war over Taiwan. So the best thing for the United States to do is just to let Taiwan, just to like back off and let China invade Taiwan. Okay. So I think those are all the kind of positions that are out there. I mean, did I, is there anything else that I'm missing in terms of other reasons you think the left is, you know, not confused, but take this particular position? Yeah, I think that sounds pretty accurate. I mean, I think what's interesting is that just uh, you have this, as I mentioned, time lag regarding Taiwan still being framed as, I mean, like under Chiang Kai-shek. Uh, but then I think also you do have time lag in terms of perceptions of Taiwan and China's economy. Uh, for example, I think some people are still caught in the whole like Foxconn mentality where you know Taiwan's economy is so large and, and et cetera, and China is actually the one that's lagging behind. And this is not the case now. This paradigm does not apply now as it did in the past. Uh, but I think that you still have this perception. And so Taiwan is framed as an exploiter, as inherently right-wing, etc., uh, and as uh, that the China is actually somehow on the defensive to Taiwan, and so I think that's that's an interesting thing. Uh, but with a kind of anti-war narrative too, it's also quite interesting because I think a lot of it's very hyperbolic, uh, as though the U.S. and China are already on the verge of nuclear war over Taiwan, or that a Chinese invasion of Taiwan could actually happen. And so I think this is again not too realistic in the sense that uh, there's already this very hyperbolic view of the situation, but that's actually not the case. And I think that sometimes requires talking back these military talking points, which often come from U.S. or Chinese military officials that need to justify their raison d'etre and their military budgets by just playing right, up right. this threat. Yeah. When, what, what, do you, what, what would you say to people who, who kind of take these left, quote-unquote leftist views on Taiwan? Um, yeah, when, when you were talking, I thought there was actually one more reason recently okay. um, from well, maybe the, the liberal crowd that defend China <laughs> is that they think Taiwanese independence is basically racist, you know, yeah, it's this yes, xenophobic <laughs> idea against uh, Chinese people. And then this view is actually not only taken by some liberal folks in the States, but also in Taiwan, right? So a lot of the, I know some cultural studies professors and their students, uh, they really love to exceptionalize this idea of Chinese in Taiwan and say any sort of restriction against them is a Taiwanese nationalism, uh, racism against, particularly against the Chinese. And that is the legacy of this Cold War divide, right? That Taiwan wants to side with the U.S. And so uh, they have this like racism against uh, China. Um, but 
I mean, what I want to respond to that is always that um, I think Taiwan is just racist against foreigners. There's a lot of right an, real an zag, equal yeah. policy, right? Like against like Southeast Asian migrant workers, and there's like this uh, gold card divide of white foreigners versus uh, folks from other places. And so, for a lot of the pro Taiwan folks, we want to argue that uh, Chinese. Folks um, in Taiwan, they're just like any other foreign people. But for a lot of these folks, they want to maintain a kind of special, um, I guess, status mm -hmm. for the PRC citizens. Right. So they actually exceptionalize PRC citizens in that way. But that right. discourse gets circulated a lot, I think, in Asian American study circle as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the okay. So. This came up a lot with Hong Kong two years ago, right? That people would say the Hong Kong protests in 2019, you know, I think even now we're still like confused about what exactly it was that brought out the whole city. And a lot of people would point out, um, for instance, Hong Kong media would portray people from China as giant cockroaches, I think was the insect. It's like, see, this, this movement is racist and classist in origin. Um, and so I guess, yeah, this is the question I, was, I also wanted to ask was like, do you find Taiwanese independence or pro-Taiwan or like, you know, sort of critical PRC perspectives? Like, is it, is it a sort of like this cultural thing of like, oh, they don't, they, they dress different than us. They speak different than us. Um, do you find that like, that is a big thing that Taiwanese people um, like need to confront about themselves? Or do you feel like, like, I guess you're kind of saying like, yes, but, that also applies to how they feel about like Filipinos and people from Thailand and Indonesia and, you know, everywhere. Um, I think in general, yes, I think Taiwanese people are pretty racist in that <laughs> Like um, the way we think about foreigners, particularly, um, you know, but that is coming from this, like, uh, I think this Han supremacy idea, right? Like the Chinese or that some, some folks would think um, Taiwanese people actually have the best Chinese culture and the CCP kind of ruined it all. That was like right, the right. older generation's idea. That's my um, uncle and mom. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I mean, that was part of, um, I think, the mainstream discourses of the KMT. Uh, yeah. But then later it becomes this much mass cultural thing of Taiwanese people trying to distinguish themselves from the Chinese. And I would say there was um, a period of that kind of portrayal of Chinese as uh, whatever, like in, in a negative way. Mm -hmm. But I, I would say after, you know, like 10 years or so, this particular generation of activists are very, very cautious um, mm, okay. in terms of not falling into that racist and xenophobic trap. And in fact, I think uh, Brian also talked about this all the time, right? A lot of pro-Taiwanese independence activists are the one who stand for Chinese dissonance, uh, like during mm. um, like uh, Liu Si, right, or the six four yeah, uh, Tiananmen right. anniversary, yeah. right? So for a lot of the, I mean, are they are Taiwanese independents, but who organize with Tibetans, with uh, Xinjiang mm -hmm. dissidents, etc. So, um, so I wouldn't make a political judgment and say Taiwanese independence movement itself is racist. I think that's a dangerous um, yeah. leap there. Yeah, uh, to kind of backtrack a little bit then um you know I, I, we brian already talked about this but when do you have any other kind of thoughts in terms of what would you say to the kind of western leftist who says taiwan is just an extension of u.s empire and therefore we should not oppose taiwan but just you know not not concern ourselves with what happens to taiwan yeah for sure so i think uh there 
I think three things. One is uh, we've talked about that a lot. That argument itself is ahistorical, right? It doesn't account for uh, the way that Taiwanese people have fought for democracy, have fought against the KMT, and actually have fought against Japanese rule and sound of the U.S. intervention. So that is, I think, part of the tradition of Taiwanese independence movement uh, for a long time. So to say that Taiwan is always a part of China, an extension of U.S. empire, it's completely... Uh, sort of um, flatten, you know, a lot mm. of this subjectivity, political subjectivity. Yeah. And um, and second thing I want to say is um, something more around, I think the U.S. Um, education itself, particularly Asian American <laughs> study, right, uh-huh. that we often sort of operate around this idea that the solidarity a framework of anti-U.S. empire. Mm-hmm. And yes. we have to challenge ourselves like whether that is still uh, the only goal or the thing that can brought everyone together, right? So if yeah. you wanted to build solidarity with um, South Korean folks, with Japanese folks, with Filipino folks, I mean, can you say uh, anti-U.S. empire is the only operating uh, goal, you know, across Asia? I mean, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say so. I think... For Asians in Asia, um, I think the podcast talks about this a lot, right? We don't really get along. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So to, to create yeah, yeah. A, a false sense of unity just because you're in the States, I think that is, um, it really totally decontextualizes uh, the living experiences of folks in Asia. What you just said kind of leads me to think about, well, what if it's not U.S. empire, what is the thing that a left would organize around? I would say traditionally the left should be organized around a critique of capitalism, right? But, and this has kind of always been my question when I'm in Taiwan, I have to say I kind of bring to Taiwan, I I, I think I brought to Taiwan a lot of stereotypes for my parents, which is like, this is just a foothold or a, uh, this is an island dominated by the KMT and very conservative values and very pro-capitalist values. Is there, has there been a thing where the youngest generations in Taiwan are actually vocally allowed to criticize capitalism and align themselves with global leftist movements is that just like a, yeah, I mean, is, is that, is there more space for that than there used to be? Um, I, would, I mean, I say it comes in waves, um, like how mass movements usually are. And because Taiwan, unfortunately, it is very um, concerned itself with like the pro, pro unification and independence movement uh, spectrum. So a lot of these issues and uh, debates have always been leveraged around these two poles rather than on class issue itself. So it's, right. it's, it's hard to say uh, whether, you know, a sort of movement is left-leaning or right-leaning in Taiwan in that sense, yeah. right? Yeah, like, yeah. so for a lot of issues, even environmental issues in Taiwan, some like the KMT are leveraging some environmental issue, but it's actually not about <laughs> environment at all. So, and that's why organizing in Taiwan from a left standpoint, it gets very, very complicated. But um, I think, Right. The, the purpose of the new bloom is to create those spaces. And I do think for the U.S. Uh, radical folks as well, leftism is not only just about anti-capitalism, right? Like folks yeah. are organizing around many different ideas around environment, around, you know, sexual identity, around, you know, different things. I, I think for a lot of Taiwanese younger generation as well, they're radicalized by uh, like a lot of my students are radicalized by the LGBTQ movements. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're very, very interested in indigenous rights. Um, so mm-hmm. do you say those things are completely different from anti-capitalist critique? I don't think so. But I think the the point is to insert those critique and to make it uh, intersectional, right? Like in terms of indigenous rights, we think about 
land owning and what kind of corporates are um, right. uh, dominating and seizing those lands. I mean, and that in itself should be a leftist concern. Um, yeah. Rather than the traditional leftists, they actually become so conservative to a point that's disgusting to me. Traditional leftists meaning sort of like anti-U.S. imperialists who are therefore supporting yeah. all sorts of governments around the world that do right. bad things. And not even, not even anti-U.S. imperialism anymore. It becomes, um, maybe, maybe Brian's written report on that, right? So, um, <laughs> yeah, maybe you can add more on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hard I think to a lot of what they become. <laughs> Yeah, I think a lot has just become Chinese nationalism at this point from the, uh, particularly mm. uh, as we phrase it often in English, the pro-innovation left in Taiwan. And so then they just, you know, anything that opposes the U.S. is automatically good. Uh, they embrace these strange conspiracy theories about COVID and vaccines and what have you. Uh, it's just become really just, it's interesting because watching that generation of leftists just sort of take a nosedive off a cliff in, in the sense that they've become so uncritical and their views are now filtered only through this lens of China effectively. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think that's the paradox in, in Taiwan is is uh, one would think that there would be a lot of stigmatization of left, and historically there was from the KMT, just banning reading Marxist texts and cracking down on student activists and whatever. But I think that it's interesting because in some ways that cleared the ground for a new generation to become involved in leftism because the KMT was still around and, and seemed powerful in 2014. So people were like, well, these texts that the KMT historically tried to prevent people from reading, maybe these are interesting and worth checking out, etc. I also think that, you know, particularly around that time, there's the focus on the international kind of various social movements that are were popping up, such as Occupy and etc. And so these were viewed as models for uh, activists in Taiwan to potentially mimic or to learn from. Uh, and yeah. just, you know, people... In, in particularly in college or reading social theory like David Harvey and people like that who now may have a little more questionable views but they are familiar with these <laughs> right, <laughs> they are familiar right. with these texts and, and that influences their thinking and so I think that actually did create uh, the grounds for for a lot of uh, interest in leftism I mean I feel like these opportunities were not fully real, realized in the in the past uh, 10 years effectively but the, it's still there and there's a, still this uh, wave of, of energy yeah mm. I just thought about my third point. Can I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I was going to say, like, what I would say to those folks who supporting those uh, left-leaning ideas against Taiwan. And I think one differentiation, different, uh, differentiation we should make is uh, defense versus uh, military aggression. Because I think mm-hmm. from a leftist standpoint, at least from my own political trajectory as well, uh, we, we were opposed anything war-related, right? Like, we don't mm-hmm. want to understand national security, particularly from the 9-11 generation. I mean, national security is this racist, uh, you know, yeah. imperialist uh, mess, right? So we don't want anything to do with that. But really, from a Taiwanese standpoint, uh, there's a difference between building up national defense versus uh, being outwardly uh, militarized mm-hmm. itself. And so for the purpose of expanding its military power and invading other countries. Uh, but I feel like for U.S. leftists, they don't really try to distinguish, distinguish between those two things. And, yeah. um, and just because, right, like uh, the U.S.-Taiwan agreement around military cells, uh, they're taking actually a pro- Beijing standpoint uh, against Taiwan having the right to self-defense and say, but I mean, the alternative, like, why don't you argue for demilitarization of uh, China or the U.S., but you're accounting military aggression or the lack of in this small country that's called Taiwan. So I found that kind of ridiculous and very uh, just double standard. 
Yeah, point. So, and you're talking about sort of like the anti-war left who are like... The anti-war who, left. Selective yeah, 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 absolutely. I, I think a lot of them just view it. It's almost as though Taiwan would be invading China, and that's not how it is. <laughs> yeah, that'd, be, that'd, be, that'd be like a death possible. wish. <laughs> that'd be a death wish. And no one wants that, right? No yeah. one wants that. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I think there's I think, I think a lot... Yeah. Cold War idea that like China's a third world and Taiwan's a first world country, you know? And exactly, like, yeah. And because of those categories, right. therefore one's a victim and one's an aggressor. You know, it's very also yeah. the KMT, I think. There's this they're still caught in the time warp of seventy years of the, the KMT wanting to go back and militarily re, you know, conquer China. Right. So I think that's yeah, yeah. how the present is framed. And I I've I've recently taught this the last few years and I was I realized like uh Chiang Kai shek was always talking about going back to China, but like the United States was like, no, like let, let it go. <laughs> like, like they yeah. entertained it, you know. But like privately, they were like, "We're not invading fucking China," you know, for Chiang Kai Shek, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so on that, on that note, I thought this one might, was would be kind of fun to talk about. Uh, I think one of those anti-war articles uh, you were talking about came out in the Intercept a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if how many people paid attention to this. I know Taiwanese Twitter definitely paid attention to this. This from a writer at the Intercept named John Schwartz, and uh, the article kind of got made fun of a lot but to be honest i think if you read most of the article it's not that bad in a lot of ways right in terms of presenting the information but there's a few things he said that i think really triggered people but it might actually be worth looking at the and in particular there's these lines um at the beginning of the article the the premise is you know we shouldn't go to war with china over taiwan and then he introduces taiwan and he says ten thousand years ago taiwan was literally part of mainland china the island that's um, <laughs> until sea levels rose and cut it off. About 6,000 years ago, it was settled by someone, probably farmers from the mainland. And, okay, so 10,000 years ago, Taiwan was literally part of mainland China. That's the line he got in trouble for. And by the way, he has corrected, he has now corrected, he's changed it. And now it says the island that's now Taiwan was connected to the larger Asian landmass. So it kind of rolls off the tongue better, right? But um, what, like, what, what was so controversial about this? Like, saying that Taiwan is literally part of China 10,000 years ago and that it was settled by people from China. Yeah, I argued with him at the time. Uh, I think he didn't really help it himself because he really tried to dig in his heels on that claim on, on Twitter. Uh, yeah. And so that and also his, his argumentation was just like, no, you're wrong. And things yeah, like yeah. that, very, very... <laughs> but yeah. I think uh, it's just the issue of, of these pre-modern claims uh, of sovereignty and just trying to you know ground this in, in something pre-modern that's not what people today think or feel at all. I mean, this again just disregards indigenous history that Taiwan was a Han settlement occurred in the last 400 years, etc. Uh, but then also just, you know, if you think about the world uh, in terms of all the different geographic places that are connected 10,000 years ago and then just try to reset the world back to this boundary, that's just an absurd thought. But yeah. I think a lot of times people, Western leftists, uh, Think of the world outside of the West uh, in terms of these fuzzy abstractions as though the long durée history therefore rules more than the present. And so I yeah. think that that is one of the issue actually, just that after a certain point, it's like, well, logic is out the window. We would never accept these claims in Western contexts, but for non-Western contexts, we will allow this fuzzy abstraction to just take root. Right. It's kind of like saying uh, 10,000 years ago, the settlers of the U.S. came from Russia and being like, well, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, right. go back to that, yeah. Yeah. I don't know, when, what did you think when you saw this? this or did you read the article? Um, I can't stop at the top. So, But I, yeah. I, I did find that ridiculous. And a lot of the, these claims, I think my trouble is they obviously erase uh, the fact that, you know, Taiwan has a large uh, indigenous populations. And I don't know why, I mean, this always claimed of the landmass with China, it's, um, obviously, it totally erased any like Taiwanese subjectivity <laughs> as well, yeah. and I think it would never do well 
in Chinese language, but they always succeed in English <laughs> press. So right, yeah. Um, I, I have a question about that because I thought I saw this complaint a lot. You know that this is erasing erasing Indigenous people. I think you know that is accurate, right? Just the 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 basic history would be like you know up until 1700 there weren't that many settlers from China and, and there was in 1700 with the transition from the Ming to Qing dynasty in 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 China that there were huge waves of people from um I guess we call it China by then right uh from the Ming and Qing to to Taiwan and that's like kind of this one big wave and then the 1940s is like kind of a second big wave um but does it really does the does whether or not he recognizes indigenous people in Taiwan, which are still you know like I think like twelve percent of the of the population, that doesn't really change the fact that there's still a demand by Han Chinese people in Taiwan for independence from China, right? Does that make sense? Like does it whether or not the they fact- recognize. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I guess I wonder about this um, the claim to recognition of indigenous people because the majority of Taiwan is still the the argument isn't so much like well because Taiwan is still like. The majority of people who push for Taiwanese independence, like you know, both of you, right, would be like I self-identify as Han Chinese, right? So you don't necessarily have to be indigenous to claim you're independent from China. You can still talk about well, in the last hundred, two hundred years, there are all these historical reasons for why Taiwan is its own place, even if we are ethnically Chinese and our families came over at some point, right? Oh, does that make sense? Is, yeah, 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 for sure. Um, I mean, I think so. I mean, that's why I mean the intervention we want to do in the pro independence movement is that. National independence will not stop at the time when the UN recognized Taiwan, right? There is a long way to go, particularly, uh, you know, along with this um, anti-settled colonial mentality and the self-determination uh, movements of indigenous folks in Taiwan. Those are, that should be a connected movement. Um, yeah. And also, I think part of the history now is being more and more recovered by Taiwanese historian is that uh, when the Han Chinese settlers come to Taiwan, it was not an empty land. They had to do a lot of negotiation and conflict. They have conflicts with indigenous nations here. So when the Qing government was established office, let's say in the south of Taiwan, it wasn't so easy because Taiwan already had its own walls and cultures and uh, a lot of the political conflicts that the Qing politician actually did not want a piece of. They couldn't regulate it in a way. So uh, that's why I, I do think talk about indigenous history is so important because it mystif- I mean, it demystified the idea that um, Taiwan was governed by the Qing dynasty in this successful way, or it always see itself as Chinese. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's good. And I think, I mean, I, you know, we're breaking from the John Schwartz article, but um, it's not just so much one article. I think these are the very common ideas for a lot of people. You know, they look at a map and like, oh, it's just like a tiny speck by this giant country called China. Um, without thinking deeply about like, well, how do these countries come to be this way? And uh, are are these are these people necessarily like one race, quote unquote? Um, okay, so I think maybe we should kind of end by just talking about like takeaways, practical takeaways. Okay, so one practical takeaway is um, there is a general independence-ish sentiment in Taiwan, right? Or like self-determination, let's call it. Um, what would a what is different about your perspective? Because as sort of self-proclaimed radical left progressive, you know, perspectives, like what is a leftist perspective on thinking about Taiwan as opposed to I don't know, like a, a liberal or conservative 
version of independence? What what is the differences there? Uh, Brian, do you want us to take that one? Yeah, I think uh, we're more critical of the nation state. I mean, we are pro-independence, but it's not like we're just giant fans of the nation state either. And so I think for a lot of, uh, let's say, more liberal or non-radical independence advocates, they would just you know, having a nation state, that's good, and, and et cetera. Uh, so I think we want to think beyond that. And, you know, we're not such a, a big fan of the nation state itself, but just in the meantime, the nation state is not going to fade away tomorrow. And and just the, the practical realities in life in Taiwan is that it is a de facto independent functioning nation. Uh, and so how to think about ways forward for that. And I think also then in terms of a vision of, of what then a uh, kind of emancipatory vision for Taiwan, I think for us, it would be thinking about these issues such as indigenous independence, for example. Uh, that's not something we would view as antagonistic to Taiwanese independence, because I think historically a lot of independence advocates have only embraced the indigenous issue as a way to just say, well, we're not China, we have indigenous people, or claiming that, you know, there's indigenous descent, etc. And I think about these various socioeconomic inequalities that you know, like, what does what the vision of a nation state look like? Like, who, you know, who is the, where are the borders of that? Or, or you know, there are exclusions from the nation state inherently as a formation. Uh, and then, then think about, you know, for example, uh, LGBT rights, uh, indigenous rights, economic inequalities, etc. Because a lot of the, there, there is the right independence movement. And, you know, for them, particularly in the past few years, we've seen they're very homophobic, uh, for example, or that they're, they're uh, also just very wealthy businessmen, uh, etc. Yeah, I think one idea we want to challenge is that we don't want to replace this KMT Han Chinese uh, hegemony with a Han like Minan ethnic hegemony, right? So a lot of the ideas are still very heteropatriarchal, right? And also, um, um, you know, mono racial or mono ethnic. So right. that idea, I think we want to keep uh, pushing and intervene uh, in the broader movement itself. Yeah. Um, another question is, um, what is, so like if you had your way, like, let's say you were like in charge of, I don't know, the, the Taiwan for a day or something, what is the actual long-term <laughs> like vision in terms of the relationship with China? Uh, is it an antagonistic one? Is it one of, you know, cooperation? And I guess another question is to the extent that, you know, most of the rest of the world, most of the U S kind of talks about Taiwan only in relation to China, Right. When you read those articles, like, what do you think about them? Are you like, are you happy that people are, because these are basically demonizing articles, right? But how China is going to invade and take over Taiwan. Are you happy that they are presenting China in this way? Or are you, would you prefer a sort of more, I don't know what the word is, like co-equal or be, or mutually kind of respectful relationship between Taiwan and China? Um I don't know what like what the spaces for those kind of ideas are these days, but have like to the extent you could think about it, like what is the long term vision of of Taiwan and China's relationship uh, in your in, in if you had your way? Yeah, I think it's a it's a tough question. Yeah, I think that at the end of the day, you know, some post-independent Taiwan, uh, China will still be your neighbor. So you do if you do want to not always be facing this military threat or the threat of economic cohesion, you do have to have some relation with China. But then I think it does have to be conducted on a ground in which China is not just always just trying to to military threatening Taiwan or uh, claiming territorial claims. And so the question is how to negotiate to that position, I guess you could say. And you know, I don't think that China's I don't think the PRC's claims over Taiwan are from time immemorial. They are something that was emphasized at a certain point in history and became part of uh, contemporary Chinese nationalism. And so I do think that there, there are there are ways to shift on this. But I think it's a broader question how to get to that point. Uh, and also without relying on just being the pawn of the U.S. either. And so finding a way out for Taiwan that isn't just being caught as a chess piece between China and the U.S., that's the difficulty. And so I don't have an answer there too, but I think we're trying to work on those questions. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I do think uh, one of the problems with these articles is that it plays a burden of cross-strait relations solely on Taiwan, which is just not realistic. And then uh, what the relationship between Taiwan and China uh, will be, a lot, I think, also depends on what China will be. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, I, in my, I, I do hope that, you know, it, it would be less authoritarian and there would be much more of a, you know, democratic form in, you know, in China and uh, that respects uh, all different ideas. Um, but it is, in our foreseeable future, it feels the chance is very slim, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think there, from the people's standpoint, right, there is, there has been this linked fate uh, idea uh, between uh, marginal populations such as like LGBTQ folks mm-hmm. and even Hong Kong activists and how they think about Taiwan as very connected to their future. Mm-hmm. And I, I do personally, I, I, I would love to foster that because um, I think that is good for, uh, to imagine a future of any sort of cross-strait relation. It comes from um, that kind of grassroots solidarity, even though it feels very difficult right now. Yeah, yeah. There and there is a long tradition of like you know, for, for instance, people uh, exiled after Tiananmen, moving to Taiwan, right? And because that is like a safe place for them. Um, so I, I think one question that might be more appropriate for listeners who are not you know who are based in the U.S. probably what um, what would you what do you think like people in the U.S. or the rest of the world? Um, like, what do you think they should do or think? Or maybe they can't do anything. I, I think that's a. I, I saw a poll that said something like 88% of people in Taiwan favor basically the status quo, right? Strategic ambiguity, where Taiwan thinks and acts and lives every day as if they're independent and China doesn't recognize it, but they both kind of just agree to disagree. Is that kind of your stance? Like, everyone is just stuck in strategic ambiguity for the time being? Or. Yeah, I think a lot of it is based on pragmatism. Just knowing that if you do declare independence now, then China will view it as, as pretext for military retaliation. Uh, but I think that then the question is, is can the status quo last forever? I don't think people necessarily think that all the time either, but it does seem like the best option now. And for us, I think we design, define ourselves as a pro-independence publication. So we probably do want to have some more permanent grounds for independence or what that means. But um, I think that, again, just a lot of the, the the burden is put on Taiwan in terms of seeing Taiwan as a provocateur somehow in this relationship, and that's not what it is. And so I think that the support for the status quo is an extension of this pragmatism and just wanting to be left alone. I mean, you notice at the same time there's not a lot of interest in joining the military to fight China either, for example. I think this is also because just people really just want to be left alone and, and are not aggressors, actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, only just uh, practically, I think, uh, for U.S.-based folk to support, you know, any... Um, um, Taiwan's engagement with international community would be helpful. Um, a lot of issues, not just on um, national issue, but like uh, like we talked about, like the climate change issue. There's scholars who are pushing for Taiwan to be in the conversation, or yeah. you know, during COVID um, in terms right. of WHO. So right. there's a lot of grounds in which um, we don't have to go to that high level of national debate, but to practically, I mean, Taiwan is part of the global community. So to view Taiwan as connected to the world rather than just with in reference to the China or to US, that is, I think, a very important first step, um, I would say. And for folks who are studying or who are in academia, I, I would just really encourage um, us to think about um, the question we talked about, right? What is empire today and how connected these empires are? And, um, you know, can we still use the same 
theories and reference from the 50s and 60s, which um, I, I definitely don't think that works, right? This romanticizing of, yeah, um, yeah the anti-colonial, anti-US imperialism yeah. left, um, it really needs to be updated. Yeah. Yeah. So like, what do you think would be a different perspective that you would find more useful than anti-US empire? So I think, so we've been writing a lot, obviously rejecting this new cohort discourses. And if you really pay attention to uh, global capital analyses, we know that, right, both US and China, I mean, US and China are highly independent in many, many aspects. So uh, it's, impossible to single out this idea of, I feel like, U.S. empire itself, or, and it's impossible to, obviously, to critique, uh, you know, the PRC as its own unity. It's obviously connected to a lot of the different authoritarian regimes. So if we can think about that idea, just more complicated to think about uh, the interconnected workings of empires, uh, that, I think that is a huge, huge step. Yeah. I guess another question is, I know when you mentioned you're kind of involved in like sort of Asian American political intellectual spaces, and Brian, I'm sure you have thoughts on this as well. Do you feel like this conversation happening about Taiwan in Taiwan is divorced from the conversation in the U.S.? Because I think, I would assume that the Asian American, you know, like Asian Americans are basically, a lot of them are Taiwanese, right? And are connected to these issues. But I don't know, like, I guess this gets to the question, like, does Asian American, is Asian American just this sort of like, Bland, flattened average of Asians. Can can specific questions about like what's going on with Taiwan, what's going on with Korea and China, and so on. I don't I don't know if those actually like you know have play. But I mean, do, do, have you thought about like is this a thing that Asian Americans could pay more attention to or should pay more attention to, or is it just simply like well, those who are Taiwanese will care about this, but um, it's not. Yeah. Um, it's not. It's not like a. It, you, you can't expect everyone else to to pay attention to this stuff. Right. I think just a recent example of the Stop AAPI Hate uh, organizing. So a lot of Asian Americans and uh, younger generations of Asian Americans are involved. But I, you know, when I see um, some protests um, like in the Bay Area, in New York City, um, you know, you find like CCP flags, right? Yeah. (laughs) In the middle of the crowd. Um, So I think (laughs) that is something that Asian Americans should pay attention to, right? Yeah. Um, How do we organize our spaces even though we have so many, uh, so much political differences? So those things should not be silenced, right? And as I always say, there's a a Hong Konger friend uh, who's living in UK now. She was posting an article about Taiwanese American or something, but then the site uh, flagged it as being Sinophobic. So, you know, all these things are happening (laughs) in very grassroots organizing circles. So if you're a part of it, I I will call it out. I mean, I would not want to see that happen. Yeah, it will become normal. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I think this goes back to our conversation about tankies, but I think there's (laughs) a tendency for Asian Americans to view themselves as the minority in the U.S. and therefore they project this dynamic onto China or Asia in which they are the majority. And so then they have difficulty conceptualizing of China as potentially being an aggressor or an imperial power, etc. And I think just then there's the insularity and in focusing on the U.S., the place you grew up as as, as uh, the only big bad in the world. And this failure to understand the realities for people outside of the U.S. is that it can be a multipolar world. Um, and so I think this is the challenge, too. And I also do think that it's quite interesting because a lot of Asian Americans have sort of internalized what their parents said in some form like maybe they'll have a more radical version of that if they're yeah. more to the left but they, they really they can't think beyond this framework and so that's also sometimes the issues I have from the more kind of pan-green Taiwanese Americans too that they have yeah. really internalized the framework of their parents from a yeah. while ago but that's very different from what Taiwanese in Taiwan today are thinking and feeling about uh, these kind of issues 
Yeah. No, I think that's definitely tracks with my experience. I feel like Taiwanese leftish people who are our age and younger in Taiwan are like a lot cooler than Taiwanese Americans. <laughs> right. And, and, and they will say like this kind of racist shit about Chinese people, you know, cause they hear from their parents and they don't actually like know what it's like to be an Asian, like be in sort of multinational kind of situation. And yeah, I, and I think, I don't, I don't exactly know what to do with this, but it's been something I've been thinking about throughout all this year with the EAPA stuff, which is there's calls for solidarity. There's calls for like stand together, stick together in the US, but obviously in Asia, they don't stick together, right? Like Taiwan, Hong Kong, China, South Korea, they don't stick together. They're all like, they see themselves as different countries and not part of one, one race or one group. And I don't know like where that begins or stops or how that, like, it's like somewhere over Hawaii. Like it's it just kind of like, it just gets flipped around or something. Right. And I don't, <laughs> I don't definitely know how to square that. Um, because it does seem like we're kind of, I don't know. I don't want to like completely undermine like Asian American identity and which is you know, all we talk about in this podcast, but it does seem like it is, um, it's like a fiction that's not really reckoning with the reality of Asia itself. And, do we have any, I mean, so yeah, before we go, any other kind of like final thoughts in terms of what do you think people would, should know or learn about Taiwan um, as a takeaway that perhaps challenges um, mainstream mainstream coverage? I just have two points I want to add to uh, what Andy, you just said. It's, um, I feel like the solidarity is there, the pan-Asian solidarity, but it's just the lines are shifting. So, uh, you know, like it, just in the past few years, I mean, past year, there was this multi-alliance solidarity of pro-democracy right. movement, anti-authoritarianism movement. Where's, that was in Taiwan, Hong Kong, where else? Thailand, uh, Thailand. and actually some India, right? Um, oh, okay. And it's not only is this in Asia, I saw protests in like Boston and in New York as well. So uh, I think uh, more transnationally minded Asian folks are building new types of solidarity that uh, I think Asian Americans should pay attention to as well. So it's not this traditional, uh, solely based on a racial idea or common racialized experiences, but more on the contemporary experiences with authoritarianism that built solidarity. So that we should pay attention to. Um, and second point, it's about the export-import thing. I just want to correct myself. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I just checked. Uh-huh. Yeah, it was added to 90%, but the export, 60%, import, 40% okay. uh, from China. And it, it was close to 80%. It's the uh, Taiwanese export of electronic and chemical stuff to China. So Yeah, so what you just said also reminds me, I remember in 2019, J.S. Tan, you know, member of Laosan, um, I don't know, friend, friend or, you know, acquaintance of the podcast. And I know both of you are active in Laosan. He would talk about this sort of hope that it was in, if if Hong Kong and China does not provide spaces for Hong Kong and PRC citizens to talk to each other, it would it would be in places like the United States or Australia or, you know, the Europe where they have overseas students or overseas communities who are allowed to more freely talk. And those might be potentially spaces for, um, I don't know, Sinophone, diasporic type people to to perhaps build um have conversations that are not allowed even in Asia ironically right like in Asia there's all this all this misinformation and kind of blockages from from talking to each other but if they're both students in a college university they could talk to each other if they both kind of work in work in the same you know in New York City basically they could talk to each other and potentially that is a that is another way that Asian American or Asian diasporic spaces could be useful reflecting back on Asia and not just kind of taking these old grudges from Asia and exporting them overseas. 
Yeah, I think so as well. I think that you know that's the role diaspora can play sometimes. And I think uh, in terms of overseas student movements with Taiwan or elsewhere in the world, it has often been that case. But the question that I wonder about is, does Asia America participate in those conversations of Asians in America? Because sometimes then I think Asia America's concerns are much more culturally focused or in terms of background. And so knowing the political realities are on the ground sometimes in Asia, that doesn't always apply, I think. And so I think actually pushing those conversations into dialogue with each other you know, two conversations going on, Asians in America or elsewhere, and Asian Americans or diaspora of some form. Uh, pushing those conversations together is, uh, I think, a different matter. And so I think that that is something I would like to see, but it's sometimes yeah. harder to facilitate. Yeah. Or especially as you all were just kind of saying earlier, like so many people from Taiwan, and I think China also, um, value this sort of like five-year experience abroad, but they still go back to Taiwan, like 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 when, right? And so, <laughs> you know, th- but that's like a potential kind of circuit where these ideas can kind of travel. Um, and historically, mm-hmm. that has been the case, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is how a lot of these ideas kind of left China, came back to China. I assume Taiwan, I don't know Taiwanese history that well, left Taiwan and came back to Taiwan. Um, so, you know, maybe that is that is a more optimistic way to think about this stuff. Okay, well, I think that's plenty to chew on. Um, thanks so much for your taking your Monday morning to talk to me. Um, Wen and Brian, thanks so much. And um, uh, for listeners, you can always uh, follow us on our Substack, goodbye.substack.com, uh, Twitter, at, at TTSGpod, and you can always email us and DM us. Uh, so Brian and Wen, thanks a lot. Thanks for having us. <laughs>